Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and in this podcast series we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas could help us shape our future. In this episode, my colleagues Jada Swanborough and Dominic Worre talk to Jim Leap, co-director of the Center for Ocean Solutions at Stanford University and Dr. Celine Herweiger, partner at PwC. Jim and Celine are also members of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Environment and Natural Resource Security. Hello, I'm Jarvis Rombra at the World Economic Forum. Welcome, everyone. Celine, we might start with you. When we talk about innovations from the fourth industrial revolution, what do we mean? Can you give us some examples of the types of technological innovation you are seeing emerge? Sure. Thanks, Jada. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is that the disruption of markets and industries by innovations of the fourth industrial revolution are already underway. Um, we're going to fundamentally see most industries transform over the next five to ten years as a result of the technological renaissance that we're in. And when we did our uh, PwC annual CEO survey that we launch every year in Davos, this issue was absolutely front of mind for the CEOs. So we found that tech innovation was ranked as a top business priority to strengthen and also um, concern about the speed of technological change for growth impacts was seen as a top concern. So absolutely fundamental uh, to how CEOs are thinking about business growth. So what technologies are we really talking about? Um, Well, we did a piece of work that we also launched at Davos this year called Innovation for the Earth. Um, And there we looked at the top key 4IR technologies that we felt were most disruptive for business over the next decade, both in terms of global impact and cross-industry business impact, um, but also those that were most fundamental to addressing Earth's uh, challenges. So we screened over 150 technologies, and we came up with the top 10. And just to kind of give you a readout of those, obviously many of the the suspects that you'd expect, AI, artificial intelligence, absolutely up there. Robotics, another one. Autonomous vehicles, including drones, is another key one. Clouds, and we grouped in big data to that because obviously cloud enables you to have lots of data and do big data analytics. Advanced materials, synthetic biology, which brings together the kind of biotech uh, market, which already exceeds, you know, for example, $80 billion a year virtual and augmented reality, 3D printing, and perhaps one of the most pervasive ones is also the Internet of Things, so which is basically the, the network of objects with billions of connected objects that we're now seeing being brought together under the Internet of Things. So, so from a technological perspective, it's those uh, 10 key technologies that come together. And what we then did in our work is we looked at how specifically those top 10 technologies for the Earth could be deployed to address some of our most urgent environmental challenges. And we, we went, went deep on climate change and most specifically how they could unlock uh, a zero net emissions future, looking at power, transport, consumption and production, land use, and also cities and buildings. So we can talk a bit more about some of those results later. Yeah, thanks, Celine. That's a really great introductory overview. And as you say, we'll, we'll dig into some of those technologies in a little bit. Um, Jim, I sort of want to throw to you now. Is, is this just about technology, or does the fourth industrial revolution go beyond technology? Well, uh, thanks, Rada. No, I think as, as just as the fourth industrial revolution is disrupting business, uh, it's disrupting society in some pretty fundamental ways. And one of the most fundamental is the democratization of information. Not only do we have far more data than we've had before, but we're increasingly able to tap into the information in those data, and often from the smartphone in our pocket. So that creates the opportunity to transcend politics and to directly inspire and enable shifts towards sustainability. 
means companies, for example, are better able to monitor and control their supply chains, but it also means that consumers and workers and even neighbors are able to drive action by those companies, to hold them account to account for what's happening in their operations. These direct lines of actions are important in themselves. We're seeing real changes in practices, real improvements on the ground from the pressure brought to bear through this new information. Um, but they also help governments do their part by putting better regulations and management in place. They create the political space for government to do its job. Uh, you could see, just as one example of this, uh, this how the power of this in the work of the Institute for Public and Environmental Affairs in China, which over the last several years has crowdsourced information on water pollution from factories, and so doing has enabled government to enforce the laws and has also enabled companies who buy from those factories to enforce their own standards through their supply chains. So this democratization has many dimensions, but I think it's one of the most fundamental changes we're seeing in how environmental protection can work. And Dominic, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. I guess, why is the World Economic Forum interested in this? As you know from the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Report, which we produce annually, over the last five or six years, some of the top risks have been environmental. Uh, water shortages, uh, failure to adapt to climate change, uh, these kinds of things. Um, and we've been working for some time and um, trying to bring public and private and civil society partnerships together to help fix those problems. We have collaborations on water, on forests, and on climate change. Um, but as you've heard from our two colleagues, Celine and Jim, both of whom are members of our Global Future Council on Natural Resources and Environmental Issues, there are other big topics that are sweeping through the global agenda, this transformation of society and industry by the fourth industrial revolution. And we reckon that there's something profound if we can harness the upsides of that technological and scientific revolution and apply it to some of these environmental challenges. Not only can we have public-private partnerships for action, but they can be emboldened and transformed and scaled in ways that we could never have imagined by the digital revolution that the fourth industrial revolution provides. That seems to be something worth pursuing and exploring. Definitely shaping up as an as a interesting topic, and I can see how this kind of mix of technology and governance and policy making can just lead to a, a space that is, is ripe for kind of multi-stakeholder collaboration, and uh, it needs that to actually move it forward in a, in a balanced way, I guess. Um, Jim, you mentioned before, um, the, the, I guess, the democratization of data and information, I think, is the phrase you used, and you talked about how this could change governance approaches. I'm, I'm wondering if you could give us a bit of an example about um, sort of how policymakers and international experts might be able to use this to solve major challenges or, or how it might change the way um, they think about uh, managing environmental issues. Sure. So I think, I mean, I think you see that uh, playing out on, on many fronts. I, I'm struck by one example, which is uh, that for, I'd say, two decades, we saw intense and difficult negotiations in the UN climate, process, climate change uh, convention over the question of how do we monitor, report, and verify emission reductions by countries. And we are now seeing the emergence of satellites, which can provide very accurate data, very precise measurement of the emissions from every country, emissions, in fact, from any city or state, um, in, in the most transparent possible way. So suddenly a problem very difficult to sort out on the international stage has a technological uh, 
solution. In a more diffuse level, you see uh, initiatives like Global Forest Watch, uh, which is providing increasingly real-time data on deforestation around the world, being used not just by governments, but also by companies and by activists to make sure there is a spotlight on deforestation as it happens. And governments are able to enforce the laws where they're willing, and that companies are able, again, to enforce standards, as we talked about before. So that radical transparency is clearly one of the most fundamental things happening here. I also know, Jim, that you're doing a lot of work there at Stanford on oceans. I'm wondering if you could talk us through some of the ways that technology is already disrupting our oceans. Sure. I mean, here, you know, we, we talk about transparency. Here, oceans have been the, the counterexample historically. We've had the central challenge of sustainability in the oceans is, has been invisibility. We have so, have had so little information about what's going on beneath the surface. And now we're seeing a proliferation of efforts to digitize the seas. And that means satellite tracking of ships that allows governments to catch and prosecute boats that are fishing illegally. And critically, again, allows companies to enforce the, those uh, laws. It'll, it means seafaring drones that take off across the oceans and sail the seas for a year at a time collecting data. It means that real-time data from remote sensing, whether it's satellites or drones or other technologies, can com be combined with user data from fishermen to help them target their catch on the stocks they're allowed to catch and avoid catching the things like turtles or dolphins that they that the law requires them uh, to protect. And on the horizon, you can see as, as DNA sequencing becomes cheaper and cheaper, we will be able to increasingly to use DNA sequencing to get a much more accurate picture of what species are present in any place in the ocean and what needs to be done uh, to conserve them. And here again, biotech comes back. I mean, increasingly, the world is going to have to depend on fish that are grown in farms. We, we seem to prefer carnivorous fish. Uh, and if we can grow carnivorous fish in farms, salmon and tuna, for example, without relying on wild fish to feed them, we can break the link between the seafood sector uh, and the overharvesting of the oceans. And, and that, of course, will be important to feed a growing population. Tony. Uh, just uh, to um, echo uh, some of um, Jim's points here, if you take the oceans as an example um, and this issue of uh, overfishing that uh, Jim was referring to, um, it seems that um, for many years one of the big kind of challenge and pain points between the NGOs, governments and large businesses were who is fishing properly and who's fishing illegally and the kind of equipment and uh, apparatus that we had previously to do that um, were kind of, you know, 20th century. You had police boats that would go out looking for those who were fishing illegally. You had Excel spreadsheets. You had paper and pen, almost, you know, an analog world, um, which clearly wasn't effective. And we can see that because of the amount of overfishing that has happened. Some people estimate that one in five fish that you might buy in a restaurant or in a store has been fished illegally. It's a multi-billion dollar theft from those small island states who perhaps have most of the fisheries. But now, as Jim was referring to, this technological, this satellite, this data revolution could create um, complete transparency, complete traceability possibilities so that nobody can hide. The implications of that are profound, not just for the fish, but for our arrangements, our industrial arrangements between those who fish properly and those who don't. 
between the consumer who wants to buy a fish that's been fished properly um, and those supermarkets who wish to sell it. Um, it really is a revolution um, for the conservation, uh, marine conservation movement as it is on the technology side. Very exciting times ahead. Mm. Celine, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, we've been talking a lot about natural resources here and some of our global commons, but I know PwC does a lot of work on cities and, and the energy transition, and I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about how the fourth industrial revolution could change our approach to uh, environmental management in cities, for example. Sure. Um, so just to talk about cities a bit more, when we do our work with cities, we, we like to frame it in what we call the 3C development of cities now. So the future of cities is about being compact, about being connected, and about being low carbon. And the compact bit is especially important for the kind of the cities that are growing very, very quickly in emerging economies and developing economies. And to kind of enable all of that to happen, that's where fourth industrial revolution technologies can come in. So, for example, this means designing Internet of Things enabled cities with intelligent buildings, infrastructure and intelligent grids, you know, that can enable you to have shared operations, increase energy efficiency, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, reduce air pollution, reduce water consumption and waste at the building, the transport system and the city level. So this is the smart city's future and it's absolutely enabled by 4IR. Um, smart cities of today, the kind of standout ones that we like to talk about, Barcelona, Singapore, Nice, Mazda City and Amsterdam to name a few. Um, but this is absolutely the future of cities. And add into this Internet of Things um, ecosystem in the urban environment, you've also got connected smart car technologies. You've got 5G cellular networks of the future with cloud-based platforms that can enable you to build up even more urban dev devices and have even more big data potential and even more AI-powered optimization potential at the city system level. So absolutely hugely powerful tools for city planners building better cities and for city managers trying to manage better cities. And you can layer in also, you know, all sorts of things around augmented reality and virtual reality data visualizations of these for the city planner of today and tomorrow. Um, on the other side of that, you've also got next generation building construction to improve um, energy efficiency. So we think obviously seeing the rise of 3D printing of buildings happening now, which can enable much more energy efficient um, building construction. And you've also got things like advanced materials and 3D printed solar sprays that can create, for example, photovoltaic capability for glass and other material surfaces. So all sorts of ways on the advanced material side to build much better performing energy generating and much more energy efficient um, buildings themselves as well. John, can I just stop for a, a, a point here? Because um, it might all sound terribly technical and, you know, something that is so complicated it won't really break through. But there are some, as Celine was pointing out there, some really profound issues here about the um, scale and pace of urbanization. I mean, let's not forget um, how quickly the world is urbanizing. We're close to 50%, 50% of the world being in a city or urban environment, which is amazing compared to 20 or 30 years ago. China has you know, over 115 cities with a million people in them. The United States has about 12. The pace and scale of change is enormous. And for countries like China, which wish to develop fast, get people into better quality jobs and life like we enjoy um, you know, here in the, in the West, the city design issue, as Celine was pointing out, is absolutely fundamental. Who wants to live in a smoggy, dirty city? Nobody, really. And the potential of these technologies to help us smartly design 
things is, is amazing. I'll give you one example, which actually came to us from our friends at, um, at uh, Airbnb, who gave us data which had not been previously released to help the government of China in city design and planning. When Rio de Janeiro hosted the Olympics uh, last year, um, over 80,000 people used Airbnb rooms in the city. And these were rooms, obviously, that existed because that's what you do on Airbnb. It's about 40,000 people who stayed there. You run the numbers on that, and that avoided over 210 Hilton Hotel or other hotel chain-type hotels being built. That's a lot of kind of cement, steel, dust, energy that wasn't used in absorbing those people in the city. And when they were absorbed in the city, they were all over the city. And so many local shops and restaurants benefited from that footprint. And because they were all over the city, there was less congestion getting to the Olympic venue. This kind of data modeling and these kinds of sharing economy uh, platforms, which are all part of that fourth industrial revolution, offer whole new ways for how we think about city design, how we think about creating um, new models of um, accommodating people in cities and of designing traffic flow and all of these sorts of things. So there's some very practical applications of this change that is coming around the corner and is happening in many cases right now before our eyes, which can absolutely help the livelihoods and, and urban experience of those who are now moving into cities across the emerging economies. Thanks, Dominic. Um, I'd, I'd like to pick up on that, that kind of timeline point. Some of these technologies sound as though they're already here and already being rolled out quite at scale in some places, whereas others, um, to me, still sound like maybe they're a little way off. So photo spraying, uh, photovoltaic spray painting, the uh, 3D printing of buildings, um, augmented reality in cities. I mean, Celine, are these things that are, are here now or are they things that are still in the lab and uh, are ideas that people hope to roll out? I'd say quantum computing is definitely in the lab, but this, the three or four things you just mentioned are here now, real right now. I mean, we're using augmented and virtual reality with our clients right now to do planning and design. And yeah, the sort of sprays are here, right? So absolutely here in the now. I mean, I think, I mean, for in terms of how we operate, I think the opportunity for us, right, is that all industries right now, the CEOs, as I mentioned, CEOs across all major organizations are starting to think about this technological disruption is here, is here and now, and is rapidly transforming our business in the next five to ten years. Now, the opportunity, you know, for those working on environmental social challenges is actually a lot of these technologies are smart and can have and, and enable better environmental and social outcomes if used and designed and deployed in the right way. Right, so when we're, for example, talking to our transport sector clients, right, we want to make sure our transport sector clients are fit for a world in which services are shared, they're automated, they're connected, they're smart, and they're powered by electricity from 100% renewables, right? So that's the dream, right? The dream is a future that technology enables this, for example, decarbonize low carbon transition. In energy and utilities, right, the future is that these sector clients have to be ready for a distributed grid of billions of renewable energy resources connected by an Internet of Things, optimized by artificial intelligence, with peer-to-peer -peer transactions between households and businesses underpinned by blockchain. That's where the grid is moving. So it's not just an environmental issue. It's helping to solve environmental challenges. But this is any way where the, the kind of the sector is moving towards because of the enablement of these new technologies. In manufacturing, I think it was Jim that mentioned circularity of global supply chains. How do we really achieve that? And how do we use 
the industrial internet of things, which is a huge issue across heavy manufacturing industries, who are now deploying AI robotics, virtual realities, all of which enable optimization around environmental outcomes as well. And then in retail, you've got exciting developments, you know, both in terms of blockchain and IoT enabled supply chain accountability and transparency. You've got sharing economy models. You've got fundamental transformation of heavy consumption models, 3D printing, etc. So the exciting thing about all of this, for those of us who've been trying to tackle, you know, many environmental challenges for a long time, is that these technologies are game-changing if used in the right way. And so this, the secret will be how do we make sure that as these are rolled out, there are no unintended consequences or we minimize the unintended consequences for society and for the environment, which has not happened in past industrial revolutions. And how do we unleash the full potential of these technologies for people on the planet? Yeah, so I really want to pick up on that last point. It's, it's not all upside, is it? I mean, there, there are potentially risks here. Um, Jim, I mean, Celine just mentioned that industrialization has typically caused a lot of the environmental problems we have today. And what are some of the risks? The possibilities are here are tantalizing, um, and the risks are equally daunting. I, I, for starters, right, we've talked a lot about new data sources giving us new transparency into oceans, for example. But just as an accurate real-time picture of resources in the ocean can help us manage those oceans better, it can also help unscrupulous fishermen catch every last fish. Autonomous cars uh, clearly have huge potential to change the way we get around. But a car that allows you to do your emails or read the newspaper in the back seat while you ride to work could quite obviously also lead to an explosion in urban sprawl and even to an increase in greenhouse gas emissions if those cars are not electric. And I've talked a couple times um, here about biotech, and biotech clearly will offer important opportunities for us. But the democratization of biotech, while it may sound appealing, also offers some scary prospects. I mean, we already see high school students using gene editing tools in their science projects. And that makes you wonder, so, you know, how do we get in place the governance systems that will actually help to manage those kinds of technologies and manage the risks uh, that they carry? So there are those kinds of challenges on multiple fronts here um, if we're going to make the most of these opportunities and yet manage these risks. Thanks, Jim. We come towards the end of this podcast, and I, I get the feeling we've only just scratched the surface on this topic today. kind of have two last questions. Um, Celine, I guess my first question is, what do we need to do to kind of unlock and to help accelerate more of these exciting possibilities? So, again, I, I, I'd probably frame it. There's two sides of the coin here with, with 4IR technologies kind of just being unleashed, basically. <laughs> The first is that um, we need to mainstream the safeguards to make sure it's a responsible and sustainable revolution, which is, again, as I mentioned before, has not happened in the past. So that means building the global governance structures and policy mechanisms to kind of address and avoid those unintended consequences. Um, and also doing so at the national level as well. So thinking, for example, about how you embed social environmental impact assessment and monitoring of outcomes into national digital and technology strategies and policies as, a, as one example. And that will involve governments, regulators and industry collaborating very closely to do that, to make sure that we manage those systemic risks from 4IR technologies. The other side of the coin, which is the um, more of the kind of unleashing side of the coin, the new innovations, maximizing the upside, uh, is about scaling those for fourth industrial revolution innovations that provide the breakthrough solutions um, that we really need to some of our most urgent planetary challenges, whether it's climate change or biodiversity or food or water security. 
Um, and I think there, there's there's some exciting work that needs to happen, and it, it focuses on on that whole innovation chain from ideation through to incubation to early stage commercialization and late stage commercialization, making sure ventures, new ventures, new ideas, new startups in this space get through the valley of death, get the right level of funding and support. That's really a combination of public and private sectors that can do that. I think there's a lot of venture capital out there that's increasingly getting interested now in impact as well as pure uh, profitability. There's obviously the broader impact investment um, community and movement. On the government side, there's probably a recognition that more R&D needs to come to the intersection between earth and environmental sciences and the technology intersection and get that multidisciplinary work happening on helping to define at the basic research and R&D level um, some of the breakthroughs that we need in this space. And that's something that we're looking at as part of our collaboration together uh, with the forum, with PwC, with Stanford and, and others. Um, we're looking at whether there is a need for a new type of platform uh, that can bring together those that want and are keen to finance these innovations from the big tech firms, from the, the, the venture capital side, from the private equity side, impact investment more broadly, with the entrepreneurs who are specifically looking to, uh, to utilize these new technologies to help solve Earth's most pressing challenges and potentially set up a new platform to help support these um, and overcome the value of death and bring the right partnerships to them, bring the right funding to them so that they can scale. And these the, the kind of the Teslas of tomorrow, let's say, can be um, can be supported to scale into the big successful organizations of tomorrow. That, that sounds uh, really exciting, Celine. Is so for people who are listening who might be interested in, in such a platform, how can they get involved? Can they get involved? Is this a closed shop? Is it open? It's absolutely open. So we are just at the beginning of talking to the market, of talking to those people that would use such a platform from the investor side, from the entrepreneur side, from the big tech side, from the R&D side on what the actual needs are so we can kind of define the opportunity. And absolutely, the idea is it's a platform. And in other words, we, we, we want everyone to kind of get involved in it. So the idea is to, to build this pipeline of successful ventures of tomorrow that can help tackle these, these challenges. So, so just as we wrap up, I've got one final question for each of you, and I'm going to put you on the spot here a bit and apologize in advance. My question is simply, what needs to be done next? What's the, the one or two things that each of you think needs to be done next in, in, on this agenda. I might start with uh, Jim, might start with you. Celine so has outlined, I think, a, a really important process for a framework for taking all these things forward. And I would add to that two things uh, as next steps. I mean, one is matchmaking, is that, that somehow we have to find a way to, pe- to bring together the people who understand the needs and challenges of sustainability with those who understand the emergent possibilities of the fourth industrial revolution. That's something the market does well when there's a profit to be had, but for social challenges like this, it doesn't happen automatically. And so I think we need to be focusing on first on that and how do you make those matches, find those um, possibilities. And then secondly, I think uh, we need to be pushing on uh, a related problem, which is incentives. Uh, and incentives in a market are, are a profit, and that works great. But in this context, um, there is a richer set of possibilities. And the example that Dominic gave um, on, on illegal fishing is one. Uh, if you get big players in the marketplace to demand traceability, suddenly there is an incentive for companies to find a way to make it happen. And that's the kind of thing we have to begin to set in motion so that the sector works for sustainability as, as well as for the direct demands of the traditional for-profit market. Thanks, Jim. And Celine, are there any other next steps to add to, the, to what you are outlining before? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I 
I'd say one is a kind of a global tech for good awareness campaign, right? And I, I think there's a kind of a growing understanding on social media and, and beyond that, uh, as well as the opportunities on, on you know, for well-being and, and all sorts of things for lifestyles that, that technology provides. There's a, there's a growing probably sense of mistrust around all sorts of issues from jobs to privacy around what the future of technology can also prevent, present for us as a humankind. And so I think there needs to be a global campaign that charges up the tech pioneer companies, the big tech companies, but also governments and also users and buyers to think about the upside of tech for good and really frame that challenge and really put that challenge back to those that are pioneering the technological solutions of tomorrow and the technological transformations of industries. So I'd say a global tech for good campaign is very important. So we're on the front foot of the innovation, the kind of industrial revolution that we're in right now being a sustainable industrial revolution. I'd also reinforce again that we need new ways of supporting these ventures um, and, and matchmaking is an absolute important aspect of that, but also thinking about creative ways of financing these new ventures that are absolutely in the sweet spot of deploying tech for good so that they can be supported and scaled to be the large companies of tomorrow. And finally, I'd probably add in around, I think there's a lot around education and defining almost the design challenges. So in one way, for example, those that are working on earth and environmental challenges, we need to raise their digital IQ, their knowledge of what these emerging technologies can do so that they can start thinking about that as they're thinking about things from a scientific perspective or an engineering perspective. And on the other side, um, you know, and this comes all the way into schools and universities through to those that are practitioners of these fields. The other side is raising the environmental <laughs> IQ of those that are technologists so that they can start thinking about how they can deploy these technologies towards environmental and social good, not just thinking about, you know, the straightforward straight, narrow application of technology to solving a specific problem, but also to helping steer those technologies to solving the Earth's most important problems. Dominic, any final thoughts from you on what we need to do next? Yeah, so, um, I mean, you've heard just, I mean, it's brilliant that we have such fantastic people um, like Jim and Celine and many others uh, who are kind of part of this, this network who can see the potential upsides and also ways to try and minimize the risks. The ability... Um, to bring together the best that the scientific academic community has to offer through Stanford and other related universities combined with the best that the private sector has to offer through strategic consulting, through technology knowledge, through innovative finance, mashing that together with the kind of platform for public-private cooperation that the World Economic Forum can provide, particularly through its new centre for the fourth industrial revolution at San Francisco, I think is exactly the kind of marriage um, that can create the sort of frameworks to propel this new agenda, the protocols and principles to manage those risks, and the transparency and open source mindset to really make this a revolution for all. So we're fantastically excited about this initiative at the World Economic Forum, and particularly with partners like PwC, Stanford University, and others from our Global Future Council who will help us um, embark on this exciting new adventure. Thank you, Dominic, and thank you, Jim, and thank you, Celine. It's been a fascinating half hour, and I know I've learned a lot, and I'm definitely looking forward to the next iteration of, of how this unfolds. Uh, thank you again. That was Jim Leap, co-director of the Center for Ocean Solutions at Stanford University, and Dr. Celine Herweiger, partner at PwC. 
My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and that was all from this episode of A Glimpse into the Future. <laughs>